I am excited to be speaking for the next few minutes on WGTD's morning show with a science journalist by the name of Ann B. Parson, who has written extensively on various topics related to medicine, technology, uh, the environment. Uh, Previous books by her include The Proteus Effect, Stem Cells and Their Promise for Medicine, as well as Decoding Darkness, The Search for the Genetic Causes of Alzheimer's Disease. She has just written her first novel. And we will be uh, exploring just what has uh, led her to want to undertake a a work of fiction after doing such distinguished work in the the realm of nonfiction. Uh, This novel, however, The Birds of Dog, is a fascinating book, which is very much rooted in the world of science and in an era when uh, humankind was just beginning to really understand what true science was. And many of the figures who are in this novel uh, are, are people who really lived, although in some respects kind of the primary figure at the heart of this uh, story is someone drawn from uh, the author's imagination. And uh, I found this book to be absolutely fascinating on so many levels. And for anybody who cares about science and cares about kind of humans, uh, human beings' inquisitive nature and how that can so often be a positive thing and how once in a while inquisitiveness can be also a destructive force or maybe done, followed in, in, in counterproductive ways. I mean, if you feel like exploring some of the complexity of that, then this is the book for you, The Birds of Dog, an historical novel based on mostly true events, uh, published by uh, Luminaire Books. And Anne B. Parson, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Well, what a nice, nice introduction. I, I really appreciate everything you just said. Thank you. I wonder if we could just take a moment to talk about this departure from the kind of writing that you had done before this. Uh, and obviously there's a whole world full of topics that you could continue to write about uh, as nonfiction. What drew you to want to write a novel? Um, well, many different things. I think um, I got some excellent advice from a literary agent uh, maybe even 12 years ago when I was thinking about this topic of writing a book about the early sciences uh, in America. And, you know, she suggested going t- going down the fiction path and that I'd have much more, there'd be much more chance, fluidity in the book, uh, uh, picking and choosing. And she was actually right. Um, I'm glad I didn't do a nonfiction. I, I'd still be working at it, you know? And even though this novel took a while, it just... Uh, I could pick and choose, make up dialogue, um, dive into things as that I wanted to, and avoid other things. <laughs> Explain to our listeners the intriguing title of your novel, The Birds of Dog. Okay. Well, uh, The Birds of Dog, I might have titled it The Birds of Dog Island. It would have made more sense. Um, Dog Island... Is a small, tiny little island in the Southern Pacific. And the book largely is this correspondence. Um, there's a woman, 
at the Boston Society of Natural History writing her cousin, who is on board um, a big ocean voyage going to the Southern Ocean. And he eventually gets onto Dog Island and sees that because there have been no guns or weapons that have been brought onto this little island, all the animals and birds are very tame. And it's kind of the theme of the entire book, um, nature versus technology, even as I try and tell the story of the early sciences coming, uh, sort of waking up in America, my theme ended up the theme uh, that Dog Island sort of symbolizes. Mm. The other part of that is the, uh, uh, the birds of dog, dog spelled backwards is God. Um, so there's a little twist on, on the title that way. Very good. Uh... I want to be sure to mention this before I forget, that uh, one of the reasons why I think I especially loved your novel, why it really resonated with me, is because at the uh, Kenosha Public Museum, not very far from our studios, there is an incredible exhibit called From Curiosity to Science. And uh, and, uh, I think it's something you would really love to see. And we... uh, we did a uh, walk through, actually, video morning show uh, with the uh, original curator, and uh, walked through this. and And uh, if I can, I I will try to describe it briefly. But uh, in the kind of the opening hallway of this exhibit, we uh, we walk past a series of curiosity cabinets, one after another, yeah. and and each yeah. one meant to represent kind of a different era of that oh. sort of practice that, of course, particularly people of considerable means would have in their in their great homes would be some sort of curiosity cabinet, often a, an entire room, maybe multiple rooms. And, and in some respects, this was the, uh, the beginning of what eventually became museums. But this idea, in a sense, of going out in the world and bringing back specimens, uh, which might in the moment feel like an entirely laudable practice, of course, in another way is a, is a kind of plundering. And the exhibit Let goes... Let me ask, mm-hmm. Go ahead. is it a permanent exhibit? Is it up for long? Or As far as I know, it is permanent, yes. It is part of the Great. ongoing exhibits there at the museum, and uh, I'm happy to share you uh, with you more information. And then ultimately this exhibit then goes on to explore how that kind of simple curiosity not necessarily rooted in scientific inquiry uh eventually evolved into something uh, more closely resembling what we what we think of as science but uh i thought it was the most brilliant idea and wonderfully executed and uh, and of course this is so much the heart and soul of your marvelous novel is this idea of people's curiosity leading them down certain certain pathways depending on the nature of that curiosity. It's so true. Um, there was this time, um, you know, starting the mid-1700s up through the early 1800s where things were really muddled. Uh, there was a... Uh, people really didn't know the names of specimen species. Uh, they wondered, what does the world hold? You know, the... Photography uh, wasn't available yet to tell people what things looked like. 
And so even the museums uh, in this country, the early museums, were just filled with odd things that were mislabeled, and I go into that in my book quite a bit. But you're absolutely right. It was it was sort of a grab bag time, too. People uh, were out there grabbing specimens left and right to try and figure out what they were. You know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, of course, your book, as we'll talk about uh, in a little bit, uh, also touches on the presence of shameless charlatans that were uh, yeah. trying to pass off uh, strange oddities that, in fact, had been entirely constructed by human hands, hands, fabrications, yeah. uh, you know, further muddling the water and so on. Just fascinating. Uh, so a couple yeah, of... Yeah, there was a go ahead. sea serpent um, found, which actually its, it's, it's uh, backbone had been glued together. It was many different things. It wasn't a sea serpent backbone. <laughs> Incredible. So you made a couple of choices that I'm really curious about. One of them is that uh, when you decided to write this book, this novel, uh, it is, for the most part, uh, set in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, explain to our listeners why Boston, Massachusetts was such a logical focal point, uh, geographically speaking, for your novel. Sure. Um, first of all, I grew up in Boston, and that's, so that's a good reason. But <laughs> I've always felt that um, Boston really never got its fair share of acclaim for being an early center of science. Um, Philadelphia is often spoke about because they had a very early natural history museum, but Boston soon overtook it. Um, Boston also caught my imagination. I've been writing one book, I, a private book, uh, private memoir I did for a family, the Pickering, uh, Pickerings from Salem. They also, they had four, uh, within that family, four early scientists, one more interesting than the next, and um, who were all members of the Boston Society of Natural History. So I started in particular uh, looking at one of them, Charles Pickering, who was a leading naturalist of his day, born in 1805. And um, he sort of epitomizes what, what, you know, the growth of science went through at that point. He, as a naturalist, was trying to learn all different branches of the sciences, natural sciences. He was an ornithologist. He was an ichthyologist, as in fish. You know, he was a zoologist, as in animals, a botanist. And he tried to pursue this all at once. And what happened with naturalists, as more and more specimens, uh, you know, were found, uh, they all had to start specializing because they just, you know, there's too much stuff. Anyways, the Boston Society of Natural History sort of was a, a great uh, place to burrow in and look back in time, find out why it began. It eventually, you know, evolved into the Boston Science Museum, which exists today. Hmm. I want to ask you as well about the interesting way that your book is constructed. It is a combination of letters uh, supposedly written by kind of your 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 central character, Catherine, uh, to her cousin, Charles Pickering, 
who really did exist, as you've just explained. So much of the book is in the form of these letters. But then we have, from time to time, uh, well, there is a preface of the book and then certain sorts of points of transition that are dated from much later than this period of correspondence, which was 1838 to 1842. And those are written in the voice of someone else. Explain that other voice and why you wanted to frame the book in this particular way. Well, um, boy, you're asking really great questions. Um, It's called a braided narrative, and I'd never, you know, it was pretty new to me, but uh, it was a way of getting all different corners of information into this book. I just kept finding, in the beginning of my research, I was just finding so many cool lost stories. And um, if I was just having the correspondence between Catherine and Charles on its own, it wouldn't have told enough about those stories. So I, I looked to a narrator speaking from 1895 to look over his shoulder. He was actually a, a member of the Pickering family. He's made up. But he fills in these stories much more than uh, Catherine could in her letters. And I think that really, really works well. And of course, among other things, not only are certain gaps filled in, but also there is the perspective of decades later, uh, I, I mean, essentially a half century later, uh, in which one can look back and sort of understand what was going on at that point in time with perhaps a, a, a different kind of understanding than those totally. caught up in those events in the moment. Totally. And again, um, an example of that, as I say, it's nature versus technology is sort of the overarching theme in the book. But um, when Catherine is writing her letters right around that time, the pigeons, wild pigeon, was beginning to go extinct um, because uh, the railroads were just um, opening up. The first railroad started in Boston, I've forgotten, but in the 1830s. And those railroads reaching out to the west allowed, and the telegraph also came on board in, in that era, so between the trains getting the hunters out there and the tra- telegraph telling them where the birds were um, helped wipe wipe that whole species out. But what I'm getting at is that backward glance, I can really tell that story better. Hmm. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with uh, science journalist Anne B. Parson, who has just written her first novel, and it is a wonderful book called the Birds of Dog, an historical novel based on mostly true events. I want to add, that's, that's officially the subtitle of the book. That's not my words, but yeah. the words of, yeah. of, of the author. And uh, much of this book, most of this book, is framed with letters sent from one Catherine Pickering, a, a, a figure of fiction, to her cousin, Charles Pickering, uh, not a, a figure of fiction, but actually someone who actually lived and called at one point America's first anthropologist of serious merit. And at another point, uh, uh, he is described as uh, our cousin who combined a dozen disciplines into one small body. 
So he was uh, entering this field of work at a time when it was still possible, if not easy, uh, to be eagerly and sort of greedily investigating all manner of, 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 of natural creatures. The necessity for specialization hadn't quite uh, uh, take, yeah. taken root yet. And he, he was a, a leading naturalist uh, in the entire country, and it's kind of amazing that poor guy's been forgotten. When he was on that voyage, uh, the U.S. exploring expedition to the southern, uh, southern Ocean, they collected a ton of, of species, uh, specimens, sent them back to Washington, and some of them be, helped begin the core collection at the Smithsonian's Natural History Museum. So let's find out more about this character whom you created, Catherine Pickering, a cousin yeah. to Charles Pickering. First of all, maybe uh, describe a little bit about who she is at the very outset of this book, at the outset of this story. And and I hope you will also kind of help us understand why you made the particular choices you did in terms of shaping her character and, and, and the specifics that comprise her. Well, you know, I have to say she's a little bit like me. <laughs> that goes without saying. <laughs> but, um, you know, she was pretty rambunctious is and uh, sort of against a lot of the trends, one of which was getting married. And um, she was realized that she was more and more attracted to nature than she realized. Um, and I... Uh, I show her developing, I think, from someone who's kind of mildly interested in nature to someone who becomes fairly appalled at what she's seen, which is the shooting of so many animals, especially birds. So what I was trying to do is bridge a gap to a figure that's much later in the book, and she's in part three, is Harriet Hemingway. Harriet Hemingway lived in Boston and she started the first Audubon Society in the late 1800s. So what Kath to do is she tries to start a similar um, organization, but way, way, you know, decades earlier and does not succeed. So for me, um, she, she, was, she was a precursor of Harriet Hemingway, she also, I, I have a, a little bit of a love story going on. She falls for a younger man in the book who was a true, true guy, James Cutting, uh, an astonishing inventor, born in New Hampshire. Um, and so, you know, one thing leads to another. Um, am I getting lost? You lost? No, no, this is great. This is great. Um and I, I hope it's not giving too much away to say that 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 in a sense her life story is ultimately abridged because of of ill health, and in fact yeah. she does not live into old age by any means. And uh, I'm just curious no. if if there was any particular reason why you made that also a part of Catherine Pickering's life. That is making it a a, a short life and one that ultimately was was limited by illness. You know, I knew I wanted to get to later in the century. 
and I really didn't know how to continue their relationship. <laughs> I mean, it would have sort of gotten a little bit boring after a while. I think I kind of nipped it in the bud. I uh, I wanted to go on having her disappear, forgive me, Catherine, but, um, and then go on and have a chapter on James Cutting. And the incredible things he did was foremost in my mind. Um, so, you know, um, I, I, I guess that's why her life was short. So I, I actually had, had it in mind of making it implicit that she dies of, of a blood disorder that today is curable. I left that out, but it's true. Yeah, right. <laughs> So one of the things that is interesting about Catherine Pickering is that she has this great interest. I was going to say in science. I'm not sure if that's the best way to to frame it or not, because, you know, at that point in time, science as we think about it was still just sort of coming into being. But she certainly has an interest in the world around her. I mean, a, a ferocious curiosity. And she is a woman. And uh, I think that's one very interesting theme in your book is what it was like, in a sense, the plight of a woman at this point in time who would have such interest uh, in terms of certain doors that would be shut to them or the way in which uh, that interest might be viewed by others. Uh, Tell us more about that, about uh, a, a woman with these kind of interests in the late 1830s, even as a, in as cosmopolitan and progressive a city as Boston, Massachusetts. Oh, it's so true. I mean, when the Natural History Museum started um, in 1830, you know, we're, women were not allowed even through the door. And finally, they were allowed at least to attend certain functions. And men kind of wondered why the attendance at functions went up, why women would be interested in nature. And, of course, women were. And um, I I don't go into this too much. I just give sort of glancing blows. Um, You know, I I think she, her life uh, would have been much more narrow had she not sort of kicked up her heels and decided she was going to do things a bit differently. And, you know, quite frankly, I had her uh, become a, a curator, a, a curator's assistant at the museum, but I didn't want even research if that was possible. Possibly back in those days, she might not have been able to. Then again, uh, she had an uncle, Octavius Pickering, and he really was real, who uh, helped her get that job, so... Um, yeah, things were different. Right. Sure. You, uh, in that moment where we learn about her first volunteering for the society, she says, um, I'm sure I would be given the dullest jobs. I'm a woman after all, but never mind. I mean, she's, you know, to even be, even to do menial tasks, as long as she can be, you know, in a sense, in the back rooms of this fascinating place. Uh, that that is enough for her. It's interesting too the way in which you have shaped her personality, and it kind of makes sense in terms of some of the uh, choices that she makes about her own life. 
she talks at one point about uh, how she has a tendency for sliding towards insurrection. That's how she thinks of herself. And at another point, you say, uh, uh, so often, too much honesty has a way of tumbling out of me. And, of course, it's really interesting, too, even apart from the whole matter of being interested in the natural world, is also thinking about a woman in that time and place having that kind of personality, not being quite so circumspect, not quite so reticent. Uh, and I think your book gives us some sense of, of what, it would like, what, what it would be like for a woman with those characteristics uh, uh, to be yeah, living at that well, time. Yeah, well, when I, when I was growing up, you know, there's still a lot of that, and so some of that comes from a more recent period. Um, my growing up in Boston, I, uh, you know, everybody around expected you to marry the right people, and um, that's kind of where I'm coming from, or at least my family did. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... We are speaking with uh, Anne B. Parson about her novel, The Birds of Dog, an historical novel based on mostly true events. One Catherine Pickering, a fic- figure of fiction, uh, in this book is corresponding with her cousin Charles Pickering, an early naturalist. And uh, the story is essentially set in Boston, where, uh, where Catherine Pickering uh, is a volunteer. Remind us of the exact name and the nature of this place that she refers to as the society where she was a a volunteer, and and how yeah. this particular institution differed from other other sorts of places that might bear a similar sort of name, but uh, not be going about their work in 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 the same fashion. Yeah, um, I'll just back up in time a little bit and say uh, when Carl Linnaeus proposed a classification system for species back in the mid-1700s, it just, it awoke all the more curiosity now that people had a classification system to hang a species on, so to speak. Uh, The museums of the day... Slowly, that was the beginning of evolving towards more really real science, um, knowing what specimens were. So the Boston Society of Natural History, which began in 1830, actually had a precursor called the Linnaean Society of New England, which uh, tried to begin in 1880, 1818, and um, didn't make it because the people who were starting it um, really were bankers and lawyers, and um, they didn't know how to preserve specimens. Um, they didn't know enough about natural history, and so they ran out of time and money. So then this new initiative for the Boston Society of Natural History, which started again in 1830, began sort of once more uh, all these guys were looking around town realizing they just needed a more serious approach to nature. And that there's a story I tell in the book of this awesome story where they there's a, a con artist in town and he just uh, he he's showing downtown something he claims to be a behemoth and um, charging huge amounts of money for tickets 
and it turns out the behemoth is actually a whale carcass. And all the gentlemen of Boston get very upset, and that actually led to the beginning of the Boston Society of Natural History. Their claim, we have to do better research, we have to know our natural objects more, we need a place to study them and to, um, you know, apply serious study. So, you know, the times were changing. Science was only just becoming a real discipline at that point. Right. The word scientist was only used in 1830s. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) Incredible. And, of course, you know, one of the things you're talking about is that even a place that had the word museum in its title might not necessarily be uh, a, a, a museum in the way that we might might think of it and sometimes the line was blurred between that kind of place and something you talk about called coin and curio which uh was it sounds like maybe something roughly akin to uh ripley's believe it or not you know in some of the places you would go i made up the the name of the shop but i understand there was a curiosity shop right around the corner from where the boston society of natural history began and, um, yeah, the museums, there was a big museum close by that folded in, you know, a lot of amusement. Uh, museums were really more amusement than uh, we see today, false amusement, really. Mm. So, and, um, yeah. So your, 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 uh, your novel talks about uh, a, a very interesting man who heads up the uh, – Society, uh, the Natural History Society in Boston, one Dr. Binney, B-I-N-N-E-Y. So first of all, is he someone who actually lived, or is he uh, someone you have constructed? No, he he was real. I really made his character up, not knowing him. And he actually came a few years later, but he was the president and ran the Boston Society of Natural History for quite a while. But uh, many things I have him express um, were really true to him and to to the muse- uh, to the society. Mm. One being avoid amusement, um, avoid weirdness, uh, and let's keep with the real science. Right. That this should be uh, that this should be. Uh, a, a place in which we, in a sense, separate the educational from the purely entertaining, uh, yep. which is you know really Im- important concept. Another, which is you know in some respects uh, even even more basic, we must resist the temptation to collect everything under the sun, and yep. uh, and and this is a phenomenon that uh, was probably all all too common, where uh, where this kind of a place would be absolutely inundated by, in a sense, amateur naturalists who had something they thought was going to be of, of, of interest. Tell us more about kind of the scope of this potential problem and yeah. and how this place was trying to operate in a different way. Well, when it began, uh, the first head of the society did say to Boston Sea Captains, wherever you go, please bring back things of objects of interest. So, you know, these guys were all, all over the globe, and you can just imagine what came back, even a piece of 
pavement from Troy, I believe. I forgot what I said that was. But um, And it just it was impossible to store these things. As it was, the museum, uh, the society had to keep moving uh, five times until it finally built its own place in the 1860s, a beautiful, huge place on Berkeley Street in Boston. But yeah, it was overwhelming. So finally, Dr. Binney, in, and this really happened, said, no, don't, please, captains, don't bring us so much. Now we, we need to collect only from, you know, local places. One of the really intriguing things about your book is some of the historical figures with whom we are acquainted, uh, whom we encounter in this novel, including one Henry Thoreau. And uh, so, and I think part of what makes this possible is an observation you you make at, at one point that in the year 1840, Boston was still a small city in a still small world, which means it was absolutely, impl- uh, it was absolutely plausible that someone might, you know, in, in, the, in the course of, of their daily lives encounter uh, Henry Thoreau and James uh, Audubon and 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 other uh, notable figures, and Henry Thoreau seems to have had a really interesting love hate relationship with museums, even one like this Natural History Society in 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 Boston. Tell us more about, uh, in a sense, why he's here in the book, and yep. sort of what he represents. He. Uh... He honestly, you know, I tried to only bring in figures during the t- during real time periods. So he really was had just graduated from Harvard, and he really brought in a lot of things to the new society. Uh, I've forgotten when he when he died now, but um, but he never brought in any dead animals. He hated killing things, and uh, just blended into my entire theme about the book really, as you've seen, gets into guns and that technology and and how guns are being used left and right everywhere, and he was opposed to that. And he thought most museums of the day he didn't like because they were filled with dead things. He said something like that. Um, however, he felt because the Boston Society of natural history was more geared towards the beginning of research and real science. He he uh, was better about that. He really was a homely man, unfortunately. He, as I say, uh, my mother's expression, he was as ugly as a crocodile. He had one of those neck beards, which thankfully I haven't seen any recently. Have you? <laughs> no. <laughs> and and Catherine yeah. seems to, of course, admire him. At one point, she says, "What profound honesty comes from this strange man." Yeah, <laughs> I I certainly yes, she does. And um, he also had this incredible knack for understanding Native Americans. And I think I say in the book that he he kept finding, uh, you know artifacts connected to them almost because it seemed like he was so familiar with the ground they walked on. Hmm. 
I was really in, uh, struck by something uh, in which we hear his thoughts on newspapers. This is mentioned by Catherine in a letter from the summer of 1840. Uh, uh, and and uh, she is reading a newspaper. He sees that and grimaces uh, because he dislikes them and thinks they're a waste of time. And she quotes him as saying, you call that news? Nothing's new in this world. Nothing. Drama and death, death and drama over and over, repurposed with different names, different places. If you've read about a man poisoned, a dog shot, chickens eaten, crops ravaged, or a house struck by lightning, what more do you need to know? If you grasp the basic notion that bad things happen, more examples don't seem terribly necessary. And just dampen the day. Is that a is that an authentic quote of Henry Thoreau, or well, are you just you imagining know, his thoughts on that? I uh, that is one passage that is very close to what he said, and I hope I footnoted that. I worked very hard on uh, making language my own. Uh, this is the first book, you know. Usually, my narratives and my nonfiction often come from scientists, and I don't have to worry about not paraphrasing or stuff like that, Um, but he said something very equivalent, and um, I'm sure I changed the location of the words and stuff, but I might have used, tried to use his expressions a Mm. bit there. I like that. It's just so intriguing. I mean, I'm someone who loves newspapers and reads them voraciously, but I see his point. It's a point well made, certainly. (laughs) Um, I call him him Hank the Crank because he really always was quite critical, apparently. Yeah. Well, somebody else that we meet in your book, and uh, I'm glad we have just a couple of minutes to talk about him, is John James Audubon, who, of course, is the famed painter who uh, captured stunning images of birds and uh, and did a lot to help us kind of understand birds in a sense. But uh, your main character of, of Catherine has, in a sense, uh, a, a somewhat tortured relationship with him, or let's just say her, her, her feelings about him and his work and how he is going about that work uh, undergo a bit of a change. And she, you know, for long periods of time, has a lot of trouble with him. Uh, explain to our listeners, uh, in a sense, sort of the darker side, uh, just beneath the surface of these otherwise entirely lovely paintings for which he is so famous. Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I took this from, you know, uh, I studied him a lot and found out, in fact, he just killed a ton of birds. I mean, he has he himself in his biography says there hardly a day went by when I didn't shoot a hundred birds. And on the other hand, he calls them God God's wonders and praises them. And I have the same thing throughout the book. Other people saying, you know, how how can you love a bird so much and then bang kill it? And that puts Catherine off to see how he was fairly egotistical man i believe what's cool about him him is by the end of his life he he changes and recognizes that he has been abusive towards nature to a certain extent but um so catherine doesn't like him in the beginning 
And um, and especially there's one episode she hears about, and it it's a true story about how he tortured a beautiful golden eagle um, in order. He had this whole system where he uh, killed a bird without maiming it and put it on wires, and that was able. He was able to paint a bird so much more realistically that way. And it's a terrible story, um, what he put that bird through. So, you know, that that was the, t- the, the time, though, when, you know, you c- couldn't, binoculars weren't available yet, and the only way to study birds was to kill them, bring them down. And it's, of course, so striking to think about, in a sense, capturing and and celebrating the beauty of these birds and yet and yet the killing of these birds the capture and killing of these birds was was part of that process and of course that was something that that uh, Catherine found deeply troubling particularly over time speaking of troubling just, mm-hmm, go ahead yep, yep no it wasn't just birds i mean you know all these people who went to africa and brought back animals that they stuffed. I mean, I just, I still walk into houses where these stuffed animals from a century ago are. It's just hideous to me. I can't stand it. Right. There's also an an actor by the name of J.L. Booth, whom we meet, who uh, seems to share uh, a lot of Catherine's concerns. And uh, to the point where, you know, he's, he, he is judged by some to be insane. Uh, the extent to which he is consumed by this concern. Tell our listeners just a little bit about this. Yeah, uh, he was an actor um, and from the famous Booth family of, you know, Booth. Gosh, I keep forgetting. His father assassinated, uh, I'm sorry, son assassinated Lincoln. Uh, Boy, now I'm mixed up on that right now. Um, But he was in Boston a lot. Uh, and on stage in Boston, but he had this, that, and that's a true story that he uh, had this situation where he was president out in some western uh, state and saw many birds being killed, pigeons, and wanted to have a regular people-like funeral for them. And um, But he was called insane for, he really went overboard in his sentiments for birds. I mean, and as people maybe should, I don't know. Um, but she just um, was very, you know, uh, very empathetic for what he was feeling. Hmm. And, of course, this was at a time when uh, the world of nature was seen to be uh, inexhaustible. And uh, and that there wasn't the least bit of harm that uh, that we were doing in this plundering, and of course uh, that proves to be terribly wrong, and uh, and and certain species were were wiped out. In fact, at some point in your book, brief mention is made of something which is so sad, which is, uh, and I think this is from your latter day commentator, if you will, that there are even instances in which when it when it was clear that uh, a, a given species was drastically dwindling, that people would go out and and make a point of gathering specimens of it before they would be wiped out altogether. 
in a sense, yeah. hastening the extinction of such a species. I mean, that is... Oh, it's awful. <laughs> just, and and yeah. um, I, I tell a true story again, and uh, it was about an auk egg, which, um, you know, was sold. And it's a true story about a, a woman who belongs to the society and uh, finally bought this auk egg back, possibly the last one, and told the, the society never to sell it because it was priceless. But um, there's people uh, going, you know, to these places and trampling on birds to get the last auk egg. Mm. And yes, it's it's a, in a sense it is human curiosity, which so often we uh, lift up as an entirely laudable quality of human beings. But it is sort of yep. curiosity gone amok. And and at some points in your book, you talk about you know curiosity that is much more about us than it is about them. And, of course, that's, yeah. uh, that's a terrible problem. Do you think we're ever going to get over this? Do you think we're <laughs> going to be... <laughs> What's your feeling? Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, as much as things have changed, there's a whole lot of things that have sadly uh, stayed the same. In fact, there's yeah. one, uh, one uh, quote in your book that's really quite haunting. New technologies have, been devastate, have de- devastating effects on the natural world. Uh, humans might feel improved, but on the whole, our advances often come at the expense of plants and animals, the soil, the ocean, yeah. air and sky, and all entity, all entities we depend upon. I do want to mention you know, that... Go ahead, yeah. go ahead. No, thank you for your close reading. Go, you go ahead. I want to just mention, uh, and I'm afraid we're almost out of time, but something that is also interesting about this point in which you place most of the book is that there are amazing inventions that have just come into being. And one of them, the photograph, and then other things like the telegraph, uh, and, and, and other technologies and breakthroughs that make so many things possible. And Catherine's father is said to say at one point, uh, these new inventions are pushing us into the realm of the invisible, a place beyond our comprehension. Just talk for a moment about what it was like for you in 2024 to reflect back on a time when so many things we now utterly take for granted were cutting-edge, astounding breakthroughs and discoveries? You know, it was amazing how many things sort of uh, happened. How many of these inventions came forward at the same time? The telegraph and the photograph were practically announced the same year. And... um, one of my characters talks about uh, tele-science, the idea of sending messages. He really predicted the Internet in a little way, in a little bit. Uh, but uh, I think um, it was easy for me to get my head around this because I've been thinking about these inventions for quite a long time. And I was only too happy to place them in terms of when the sciences were starting up. The book as a whole made me think a lot about science versus technology. So the more science got laid out and um, organized, the more it was applied and uh, to some of these technologies. And, you know, I, I think of science is pretty benign, but I'm not sure about technology. Because as, as much as they improve us, these different inventions, they also can, you know, not make the world a better place. Absolutely. 
Well, your 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 marvelous novel gives us so much to think about, and uh, I, I find myself just haunted by it in, in in so many respects. The title of it again is "The Birds of Dog," an historical novel based on mostly true events. Published by Luminaire Books, the author Anne B. Parson. Anne B. Parson, congratulations on this marvelous first novel. And uh, thank you for being my morning show guest. I was so glad to be able to talk with you about it. I can't thank you enough for your close reading and good questions. Thanks so much, Greg. You're very welcome.